two. Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, beginning verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinus, there was great joy. And it'll be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And all this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, Shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you once again for this wonderful privilege and opportunity to sit under the ministry of the Word. Your Word is powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword. And by your Word, O Lord, we are laid bare, we are exposed and we see ourselves as you see us. And so I pray, dear God, that in this Christmas narrative, that you would not only expose us, but that we would be exposed to you and to your word and the truth of Christmas and the meaning and significance of the birth of Christ. I pray our hearts would be enlarged for you and our minds would be opened, that we would be brought into divine fellowship with you through the Holy Spirit. Oh, Spirit, I pray that you would anoint my mind and my lips and my heart as I speak for Lord, use me as a vessel of honor to declare your truth. Have your way with me. Have your way with all of us. Fill our room today, Holy Spirit, each and every one of us, that you, oh Lord Jesus Christ, may be glorified and lifted up here today. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, praise the Lord, we're all here today, and I know that there is quite a bit of sickness going around, a lot of sickness and colds and um, different things. By God's grace, I was spared, some of you were spared. Please pray for my little daughter Elizabeth as she's home, and she's really struggling uh, with uh, fever. Hopefully, she'll be better soon. Um, today, we direct our attention to the text before us. And this sermon that we have, and, and in this sermon, we are going to be looking at the Christmas narrative, what unfolded on that first Christmas morning. The Gospel of Luke is the only of the four Gospels that gives us um, some details of the account, and the details are few, 
Most of what we know or what we understand about the nativity is from a development from the few details here. And so as we look through this, we notice the emphasis is not primarily on the manger and the nativity scene and everybody gathering around uh, Christ in, 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 in that sense. It, it, things happened over a period of time and they unfolded um, over hours and days and weeks and months. Um, and yes, the centerpiece is Christ being born. But the event of that night, and perhaps the biggest event that took place, is what the shepherds experienced on that hill when the heavens were open and they beheld the choir of angels singing the praise of God. It is a once-in-a-lifetime event, and a great deal of what took place here, Luke records for us. And I think there is an importance here, particularly as we follow through the Christmas theme the last few weeks. Our songs are very important in ushering in the messianic age. There was a song of praise from Mary when she when she understood and it was revealed to her that she would be the mother of Christ. And there was a song of praise that was given by Zechariah when John the Baptist was born, called the Benedictus. And now we see another song today, and that song is in Gloria Excelsius Deo, which in Latin means to glory to God in the highest, which are the first few words of this song. This brings me down to thinking about what Christmas really means for us. I read an article this week by Joe Rigney of Desiring God, one of which asks, what is the true meaning of Christmas? He directs our attention to the writings of C.S. Lewis, for C.S. Lewis himself had a conflicted views, or I should say he had conflicted views on what Christmas means, and he distinguished Christmas in three different ways. The first is a religious festival, which a minority of Christians, that is true believers, it involves a sacred feast celebrating a sacred story. It is about the traditional nativity and incarnation. And this is what sincere Christians celebrate on December 25th. And we celebrate by going to church, by worshiping, by singing carols, and having a time of joy. Then there's a second aspect of Christmas, a second Christmas that's celebrated. And that is what we consider the popular holiday or occasion for merrymaking and hospitality, as Lewis would put it. And this is loosely related to the first meaning of Christmas, uh, but it describes the broader Christmas season, the, the run-up to Christmas Day, as well as immediately following Christmas. And, and this has to deal with merrymaking and visiting people and a sense of overall uh, brightness and joy for the month of December. Uh, he had no issue with this, in fact, um, he thinks it's good that there's a sense where even the world has an a, a aspect of joy during this time of year. But on the third aspect of Christmas, Lewis had an issue with. He didn't call it Christmas, he called it Xmas. And we've seen that, Xmas, uh, on different things. Um, Xmas is not the holiday we like. It is Xmas is described and defined by the hustle and the bustle and the running here and making sure we get our Christmas cards out. This is the first year we didn't do Christmas cards, and no offense, I'm just kind of glad we didn't do it. It's, it's also the, the gift buying and the purchasing and wondering, well, this person's going to buy me a gift and that person's going to buy me a gift, so I got to buy them a gift, and we run out to catch the sale. And Xmas begins on Black Friday. It begins with people rushing out and beating people up over a TV in Walmart, 
And it runs right up to Christmas Eve of people going out 11 o'clock at night to get those last minute gifts to make sure that they've checked off all the boxes. It means going out to the supermarket or to Stu Leonard's or Costco and spending hundreds of dollars on food that will be left over and wasted two days later when everyone has a stomach ache, is drunk and hungover. That is Xmas. And that is precisely what Lewis had a problem with. Lewis emphasizes the crushing effect of all the card buying and gift giving. He said, it's a great labor of weariness. He goes on to say, everyone becomes pale and weary because of the crowds and the fog. The entire ordeal gives more pain than pleasure, degrading almost into a form of blackmail since the rule is that anyone can force you to buy him or her a gift simply by sending you an unprovoked one. The result is Christmas Day comes and everyone's exhausted. Is this what Christmas is about? Well, those of us who may be fond of those cartoons, the 1960s, Charles Schultz, the author of the Charlie Brown Peanuts Christmas comic, put together the first Christmas special. And it was Linus who sat there and rebuked the whole group of people, the whole audience, as they were fighting over Charlie Brown buying an ugly little Christmas tree. He had the spotlight on him. He said, this is the true meaning of Christmas. And he read from the very passage that we read from today. If only more cartoons were made that way today. And so with that said, there are three, three points I want to look at in this passage as we look at the true meaning of Christmas. And that is, one, the historical setting, two, the nativity, and three, the angelic song. One, the historical setting. Verses one through five, Luke, Dr. Luke places the nativity of Christ right within its historical context and setting, giving us an occasion and reference point to look forward to. When we look at the story of Christmas, the story of Christmas begins with three kings. Not the three kings of Orient are, but three kings had a big part, and those kings were God the Father, who was the supreme Lord of all. It has to do with his son, Jesus Christ, born the babe in the manger, and also has to do with Augustus Caesar, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire and had sovereign rule over all of the Mediterranean world, including Israel. And it's within these three kings, I'm sorry, I gotta put my mic on. It is within these three kings that we see an interaction we see the works of Caesar, and as Luke brings our attention to Caesar, who is the ruler of the world, he bring, brings up to us also a historical context of uh, uh, um, um, Quirinus, who was the governor of Syria, to place it square within a specific historical context. And what's important to see is what happened. A decree was issued by Augustus Caesar, and this decree was that a registration, a census would be taken. Why did the Romans do uh, these censuses? They did it for tax purposes. If you know to know how much to tax people, you got to know how many people are in the empire. And it was quite common, it was frequent, that uh, uh, empire-wide censuses were taken. And this one happened to happen right around the time that Mary was pregnant and she was about to give birth. She was probably in her ninth month at pregnancy, ready to go any day, and the census was decreed by Augustus Caesar. A little background on Augustus Caesar, because I think it helps us to understand what's going on at this particular time in history, because God is the God of history. Caesar Augustus is the second Caesar in the line of the emperors of Rome, but he's the greatest of all Caesars 
because he consolidates power and establishes unity in the Roman Empire unlike anyone before him or after him. He is the nephew of Julius Caesar, the first Caesar who was murdered by Brutus and assassinated in a conspiracy. He was this nephew, and his original name is, is Gaius Octavius. And Gaius Octavius was a general in the Roman army, he was known for overthrowing Mark Antony and Cleopatra and consolidating power in the Roman Empire. This consolidation led to what is known as Pax Romana. It was the peace of Rome. And I think it's very significant that we see that at the time when Augustus Caesar was in his zenith establishing global peace, and this was not the peace of God, but this was peace by strength, peace by imperial force, peace by if you don't submit and obey Rome, we'll kill you, peace. This was the peace of Rome that established war had come to an end, and he was called, renamed Augustus Caesar, the word Augustus which comes from the word august, means to be revered, means supreme. It means someone who is regal, someone who is has majesty. And then the word Caesar, following in his uh, uncle's name, would become the title of every emperor of Rome. And this term Augustus was a word that was used to describe gods as they believed that Caesar Augustus was indeed a god incarnate. In fact, many of the coins that were minted at the time of, the, of his reign would put Augustus Caesar, Lord and Savior. Isn't it significant that the king of the world at this time, who thinks he is the Lord and Savior of all and establishing peace, is at the same time the Prince of Peace, the true Lord and Savior of all, is born. One rules from a, from a, a marble throne in Rome and one is born in a stable in Bethlehem. And yet... The one who was born in the stable is the supreme ruler, king of kings, and lord of lords. It was the sovereignty of God that moved upon the heart of Augustus to issue this decree. Why? Because if it were not for this decree, Jesus would have never wound up being born in Bethlehem. And Christ had to be born in Bethlehem. It was of necessity. And so just as Proverbs 21 one tells us that king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. Caesar Augustus, as sovereign as he thought he was, was simply accomplishing the purpose of God. That decree was God's decree. It was God's will. And it's a reminder for us that whatever the kingdoms of men and the kings of, of this world decree, it is ultimately the decree of God that is accomplished God accomplishes his purpose and will, and there's nothing that could stop that. Nobody is overthrowing God. No one is contradicting God. There are no cosmic battle between the, the, the will of God and the will of man or the will of, of Satan. It is God who is supreme. He sits in heaven. He rules over all, Psalm 115.3. But getting back to this, the purpose is that Christ must be born in Bethlehem. Why? Well, because he is the promised son of David, the messianic king. The expectation of all Israel was that God was going to send a messianic king who would rule in Israel, who would be a descendant of David. Now, remember something. Israel is under the oppression of Rome. They are not free. They are a, a slave state, a servant state to the Roman Empire. And they long for the day of, of a of a ruler, a king who would rule them in rebellion and conquer the world. And indeed, the son of David, the messianic king, was born not a king as they wanted, but the king as God intended. 
But when God keeps a promise, it must be fulfilled. First Chronicles 17, 11 says, when your days, this is God to David, are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever, and I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son, and I will not take my steadfast love away from him. It took it, as I took it from him, took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. Clearly, this is not talking of Solomon because Solomon died. This is speaking of a greater son, the son of David, the Messiah, who would have an eternal kingdom. Micah 5.2, the prophet tells us, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, who's coming forth from of old, from ancient of days. Even the prophets of God understood as they were inspired that it was going to be in Bethlehem that the Son of God, that the Messianic King would be born. And so it was necessary, it was required that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And he uses the plans of Augustus Caesar to accomplish his purpose and his will. And now we bring to the birth of Christ, the second point. We have the historical context. And now we look at the birth of Christ in chapter, chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, it doesn't give us much details. You have to think about what's really going on here. As I said, nine months into her pregnancy, the decree is given. Joseph says, listen, I have to go back to Bethlehem. That's my hometown. I'm a descendant of David. Everybody was ordered to go back to their place of lineage during the census, so it was accurate. Now, he wasn't a native of Nazareth. He needed to go back home, and that would be a long ride. That would be a long, I shouldn't say ride, when there were no cars back then, but it was a long walk, and it would be a journey of five days. Now, more than likely, Mary herself wouldn't be walking due to her condition in her ninth month of pregnancy, but rather probably had to be seated on a, on a donkey who, who, would, who would carry her down to um, a, a beast of burden that would carry her down. This would have been a five-day journey. It would have been a difficult journey. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, we could imagine the bedlam and mayhem there. I mean, if there's a census, every... I mean, you ever go somewhere that's crowded and you can't get in? I went through this craziness yesterday, right? I went, we went to the store near us, Uncle Giuseppe's. You had to park so far away. You get up to the front, there's no carts left. You go in, there's no food left. You know, when something is crowded, everything is chaos. And that is precisely what happened here. There was chaos in Bethlehem. Everybody had converged in one spot at one time. All the hotels were packed. Now, the term in there, and, you know, we often get the idea of this villainous innkeeper. Um, I don't think that we're dealing with a villainous innkeeper here. It is simply that in this uh, great uh, um, demand for housing, the caravans that would come in, and that's what the word in meant for. It was a, a holding place for caravans. There was simply no room uh, for them. They had no relatives or friends that they could stay with. And so here they are in the town, and there was nowhere to go, and the time had come for Mary to give birth. And when the time comes, the time comes. 
You can't say, wait, let's hold off, let's do this tomorrow. When the time comes, the time comes. Maria, when the time comes, the time comes. And it often comes at an inconvenient time. For me and Claudia, I remember when Rachel, it was 4 o'clock in the morning, and we don't want to wake up that early, but when the time comes, the time comes. And so she went into labor. Now, again, we're simply told she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, for there was no place for them at the inn. And the fact that the only term here used is manger. Well, what is a manger? A manger is not the little thing you put on your, your um, buffet table and is a nativity scene. That's not a manger. A manger is a feeding trough, right? It's, it's, it's what you pour water in. If you've ever seen a, a wooden feeding trough, they pour water and all the animals come and they drink the water from the water trough. This indicates to us that this would have been in a stable. And in first century Palestine, Stables were often in caves, not in wooden structures. And so more than likely, this was a cave outside of the city limits of Bethlehem. And in this cave, there were animals, there were domestic animals, and there was a feeding trough, and the feeding trough was converted to a bassinet. And in that bassinet, hay was laid. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and here was the Son of God born among men, the firstborn son. Now there's significance there, firstborn. Firstborn in one sense, he is the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph would go on to have more children. If Luke wanted to say that Mary and Joseph had no more children, there is a particular word in Greek they could have used to indicate that. That word is monogenes. But Luke does not do that. And later in his gospel, we see that Jesus has half-brothers and sisters who come to see him with their mother, later down the line. But there is another significant aspect to this, and that is in Colossians chapter 1, because we are told in Colossians 1 that the term firstborn has a theological significance, and it regards who Christ is. He is not merely Jesus born in a manger, but he is the preeminent son of God. And look at Colossians chapter 1.15. It says, he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. That term firstborn means one with the privilege and the rights above all else. He is the eternal, only begotten Son of God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Is this not amazing? The one in whom all things holds together became a human being and was actually born as a little infant baby laying in a manger, in a, a, a crib a, a, a made of hay in a feeding trough in the middle of a cave on a cold winter's night. There's no better place for the Son of God to be born. We expect that if Christ came into the world, he would be born in the Hyatt Regency of Jerusalem. Herod's palace should have been opened up and he should have been born and welcomed in a, in a gold-plated room. But Christ was born in the most humble of circumstances. And there is a lesson for us there. And this is the theme not only of Luke's gospel, but it is the theme of Christ coming into the world Christ didn't come into this world to be served. 
Mark 10, 45, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus Christ condescended to humanity. He emptied himself of all his glory. He took on human flesh and humbled himself as an example to you and I. The pride of human beings is an offense and a stench to God. Pride is when we think that we deserve greater respect, we deserve greater privileges, that we deserve so much. And I, I, I could just see now how many people tomorrow will be disappointed and say, I didn't get the gift I wanted. It's called being spoiled, it's entitlement, it's privilege. It's the exact opposite of who Jesus is and what Christianity is about. Christ, if there was anyone entitled and anyone who had ultimate privilege, it was Jesus Christ. And he came and said, I want none of it. He emptied himself of all of it. He was born to a simple family, a young girl from Nazareth, a backwater town in Israel, to a carpenter as her stepfather, born among animals in a stable. We have such high opinions of ourselves. We have such high expectations of what we think we need in this life to be happy. What we learn from this is you don't need anything. You need God. You need God. You need, you need Christ in your life. The very one who was born is the very one who is the preeminent one who owns all things. The whole worlds are in his hands. He is the one who offers everything to us. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in absolute humility, but we know that through his humility and lowly of circumstances, it reminds us of Philippians 2, 5, 7, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. I tell you the truth, you hear the saying, we need Christ back in Christmas. I go further than that. We need Christ back in Christianity. You see, this is what Christianity is about, not just Christmas. This is what every day of being a believer is about. It's about following our Lord and having the same mindset as him, humbling ourselves. Humility is about being teachable. It's about it's about being willing to go out of your way and inconvenience yourself and even experience discomfort for the good and well-being of someone else without expecting anything in return or any praise or any glory. It's about resting in who you are in Christ Jesus and not, not needing the affirmation or the praise of men to feel good about yourself. What did Jesus say to Pharisees? Woe to you when men speak well of you. Herod rode high on the chariot and everybody praised him, but inwardly they hated his guts. Christ set the ultimate example for us in his birth. Well, that's all that's said about the birth in the whole Bible. It doesn't tell us when Jesus was born. Perhaps it doesn't tell us so we wouldn't make an idolatrous day of it. But... Regardless of anything, that is all that is said about the specific event. It's what happens afterwards. It's interesting. Look at verse 8. And in that same region, and this is where we get to the third and most important point of our sermon, is the celestial song. 
And in that same region where there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, I just stop and think. Every song we sang today, we refer to the shepherds in the angelic song. Every song we sang. The shepherds have a significant role in this as well. But who are the shepherds? The shepherds, you know, we think of shepherds as these regal men who are carrying the sheep on their shoulders. You know, we think of Jesus, the good shepherd, and we think of, you know, David, who is the shepherd king in, in ancient Israel. There's, there's significance there for sure. But in first century Palestine, it was not a respected profession. In fact, shepherds were, were the dregs of society. If you were a shepherd, you were looked down upon. Shepherds were often considered dirty, smelly. They were, they were uneducated. These were the people who couldn't make it in school, couldn't make a trade. Well, we just throw them out in the field to watch the animals. They, they were known to be dishonest. They were gamblers. They were drunkards. They were, they were the, the people that you didn't want to hang out with. And I find it interesting of all the people that God wants to announce the birth of his son to, he could have went to Herod's palace. He could have went to Rome and told Caesar. He could have went to the Sanhedrin and announced it to all the religious elite. But he went to a band of shepherds, what we would consider the low-class people of the day. And not only are they the first to receive the announcement of the birth of Christ, but like Mary and like Zechariah earlier in Luke, have an angelic vision. In fact, their angelic vision is even more regal. Another theme this tells us, the theme of Christmas and the theme of the gospel is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus doesn't have any favorites. Jesus reaches out to the outcasts and the rejects of the society. Everyone the world tells you is no good, Jesus says, you are welcome to me. When the world casts you out, when you feel rejected, when you don't feel like you fit in, Jesus says you are in the right place. That's the theme of the gospel. It is the theme of Christmas. That all people are welcome to the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. It is Christ's home ministry as we will read. It is a story of compassion. It is a story of one who has a heart for the outcasts and rejects of society. A man of humility associates himself with those who are lowly. He doesn't look to rub shoulders with the rich and powerful because he's the one who's got it all anyway. Let's notice how this situation unfolds. They were afraid. Oh, rightfully so. So far, every angelic encounter we've seen, the people respond with great terror and fear. Reminder, if you said you've seen an angel, I'm very curious to know if you were terrified. And a lot of people say to me, I saw angels. How did you feel? Oh, it was good. We were hanging out. We were talking. It's weird because every biblical account I see of people seeing angels, they're shaking in their boots. It's a terrifying experience where the angels who reflect the glory of God, who are in God's presence, come into an encounter with a human being. There is something regal and majestic about an angel. And so the angel of the Lord appears and declares to them an announcement. He says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This harkens back to the announcement that Gabriel made to Zechariah. 
It is good news. This is the gospel. That's what the word good news is. It's, it's evangelon. It's the gospel. It's, it, God is, has good news for the people, for all people. And it's news that's going to bring great joy. What brings such joy? That the Messiah was born. He says, for unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What makes this so good news? Well, for Israel, this is good news because in the city of David, the messianic king who was promised, who would come and deliver his people, and, and we know ultimately it's deliverance of sins, had been born into the world. There was a reason to be joyful. Prophecy was fulfilled. God had done a great work, but it's identifying who he is. He is a savior, and he is the Lord, and he is the Christ. The Christ is the Greek term, Christos, that is the translation for Messiah, he is a savior, and savior refers to his what he came to do. The angel Gabriel told, told uh, Joseph in Matthew 122, you are to name him Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from his sins. Christ was born to save us. Christ was born to deliver us from the power of sin, from the power of death, from the power of this evil age, from Satan. Christ is a mighty and powerful conqueror. He's a deliverer. If Moses was a deliverer, how much more is Christ? But he is Lord. The word Lord means kyrios in Greek, and it indicates one with supreme power. It was the same word used for Augustus Caesar, Lord Augustus Caesar. As I said, it's a story of three kings. The true king of kings and lord of lords was born. He was a long-awaited Messiah, and it was good news, not just for the Jewish people, but notice it's good news and will bring a great joy for all people. Christ wasn't born just for the Jew. He was born for everyone. He wasn't born just for one class of people. He was born for everyone. He came to this world for all humanity because you know why? We all need hope. We need peace. We need forgiveness. We need light. We are in darkness. Jesus came to deliver us from darkness into his light. He came to bring peace, as the text goes on to say. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby swapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he is pleased. God has declared peace. You see, that is really what it's about. We are all enemies of God. We're at war with God. Whether you know it or not, you are at war with God. You're at war with God because God is the supreme king and the ruler over the universe. And he has set a law. We go back to our confession reading. And that law indicates that we live according to his rules and statutes. Just like you live in, in New York State, you live in Westchester County, there are rules and statutes. If you violate those rules, you get arrested, you go to jail. There's, there's penalties for breaking the law. God has penalties for breaking the law, and the law tells us that when we're, we violate his law, we become his enemies, and tells us that the wages of sin or the penalty of sin is death. Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We don't have to be war, uh, warriors against God. We don't have to be his enemies because God has declared peace and he's given us peace by laying his son down for us. Jesus Christ came to this world to give of himself, to die on the cross, to satisfy the demands of the law, to absorb the judgment that you and I deserve. He came to this world, he was born to die. And that's precisely what he did. He came to do God's will. And we have peace. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 tells us this. If you look in your Bibles, it's a simple verse, but it captures so much of the essence of why they were singing. It says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The beautiful thing is when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you come to believe in him, the war's over. You lay your weapons down and God says, I forgive you. Everything's everything's done. God is no longer angry with us. It's not because he swept under the carpet. It's because Jesus Christ took every one of our sins on himself. He bore it on the cross and he suffered in our place. He was our substitute. He took our place there. He died an eternal death for you and me. That's what Christmas is all about. And so we call him Lord. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Romans 14, 7 through 9 tells us none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. The angels declared this heavenly praise. <laughs> I want you to think about the, the amazing aspect of what's taking place here. The heavens open. They go from seeing one angel, the shepherds, to seeing thousands. The word myriad means thousands. Thousands upon thousands of angels singing. And they're singing glory to God in the highest, in excelsis Deo, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. <coughs> what a song to sing. But here's the beautiful thing. For Jesus, this is nothing new. For the angels, this, I mean, for the shepherds, this was a unique experience. But when you consider that Christ is, he existed in heaven before he became a man, the Lord Jesus experienced and received the praise of angels for all eternity. Was it not in Isaiah 6? When Isaiah was lifted up before the throne of the Most High, where the robe filled the temple, and he saw the seraphim, the highest of the angelic order, and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we know in John 12, 41, Isaiah was speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says this, Now has come the highest degree of the glory of God by the appearing of his Son, Jesus, in the world. He, by his life and death on the cross, would glorify God's attributes, the holiness, justice, mercy, and wisdom, as they never were glorified before. Oh, this song was a song that would be sung not just by the angels, 
but as we will see, will be the expression of joy and of delight and praise for all those, not just in this generation of the context of Luke, but in generations to come. Let's see the response. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they respond immediately in obedience. God told them, you will find a, you will go to Bethlehem and you will see a sign, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothing. And they investigate. It says in verse 18, they went out with haste. Right? If you have an angelic vision and, and, and you're told that, that the Christ is born, you trip over yourself to make sure you get there on time. Right? When, when you get good news, right? If you get good news, uh, uh, you're, you're a father and, and, and you're waiting for, to hear the news from the doctor. Your, your, your wife is in labor and they come out and they say, come on in, your baby was born. Say, so, oh, give me a few minutes, I'll be there. I got to do something first. No, you run, you trip over yourself. In the same way, Christ had been born. The shepherds made great haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known to Mary and Joseph all that had been told them concerning this child. And here's the response. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured these things in her things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as had been told them. You know, the shepherds are the first evangelists in the Bible. They're the first ones that only heard the good news, but they went and spread the good news to others. They told everybody what they saw. And isn't that what the gospel is about? When you come to faith in Christ and this good news of God's forgiveness, God's love, God's peace, God's mercy comes upon you, do you hold it in? Do you contain it? You want to tell everybody about it. It's great news. The problem is why we hold it back is because you got to tell people the bad news first. Good news isn't good news unless you let them know the bad news first. You can't know that you're saved and forgiven and delivered unless you know what you're saved and delivered and forgiven of. And that's sin. And we don't like to talk about that, right? Because sin offends people. Oh, you're a, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. Right? The minute you tell someone they're a sinner or that they've sinned against God, they've broken his commandments, the, the, the hatred and the anger builds up and we don't want to be the bearer of bad news. But in order to be the bearer of bad news, you've got to be the bearer the bearer of good news, you got to bear the bad news first. Good news isn't good news. If I'm in the middle of an ocean, I'm about to drown and go down, and, and, and I've been languishing for days, starving and surrounded by sharks, I'm not going to know the good news of someone coming to rescue me if I didn't know I was in a, in a dilemma to begin with. The cancer patient doesn't know it's good news that there's a cure for his cancer that was just invented unless he knows he has cancer first. We have to tell people the truth. Well, the shepherds declared the good news. They made known the saying that was told them concerning the child, and they went out and they told everyone that Christ was born, the Savior of the world. People were filled with wonder and awe. And then we look at how they responded. They were converted. How did they went back to their, their post and says they returned glorifying God and praising God. 
These were men who probably were drunk the day before. Maybe they were cursing and they were having a, you know, gambling. And after they seen this enveloped vision, their life was changed. Now they live and exist to glorify and praise God. And that's what God does when he, when he saves a sinner, when he, when he takes our, 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 all of the darkness in our life, when he takes of all the guilt and the shame of our sin and he gives us eternal life and he forgives us and we know the love and peace of God, what can we do but praise and worship him? That's why we sing. That's why we sing these carols. Every song we've seen in the Gospel of Luke is a carol, is a song of praise and worship and that is what we do. Well, what about Mary? While everyone else is excited, she quietly meditated on these things and treasured them in her heart. She's a reflective woman, and as we'll see as this goes on, she ponders these things in her heart. You can't imagine what it would be like. As I said this a few weeks ago, I was scared to death when Rachel was born. And I said, I'm going to be a father now. I, I don't know that I could do this. I don't think I could do the father thing. I'm, I'm scared. I'm going to mess up. Could you imagine Mary and Joseph? <laughs> Could you imagine, like, not only did they know from the angel that their son would be Christ, but now the shepherds come in and they say, wow, we just saw all these angels and they're telling us that your son is the most high God and is gonna save people and, and, and he's the Lord of all. And if, if I'm Mary and Joseph, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm quaking in my boots right now. But God had prepared them for this day. And remember, God will never bring you to anything in your life that he hasn't prepared you for. Let me conclude. I ask you today, are you celebrating Christmas or Xmas? If you're celebrating Xmas, everything I said today is it's not going to affect you one bit. If you're celebrating Xmas, you're out the door because you've got to make sure you get those last-minute gifts and, 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 and then you're going to cry about it in a month from now when you see your credit card bill. But if you're celebrating Christmas, I can tell you what it's all about is not the hustle and the bustle. It's not about the commercial exchange. What it's about is good news. It's about great news. It's about joy and being surprised by joy. There's not much joy out there today. People are feeding themselves with temporary happiness right now. But trust me, on December 26th, it's all gone. Christ offers us true joy, true peace that's everlasting. He said, the peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. I don't know about you, but I want Christmas, not Xmas. And with that comes a final thing. The distinction between Christmas and Xmas, Christmas is about waiting. Advent season is about waiting. It, 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 it's the anticipation, it's the buildup to the first coming of Christ. There was a waiting and a, an expectation. There was a, there was a sense of a, 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 you know, eager anticipation. And so we wait for the second coming of Christ. Christmas reminds us that Christ came once, but he's coming back. And I don't know about you, but I long for the day when Jesus Christ returns.
For, other, for many, it'll be a day of gloom and utter darkness, but for those who love him, for those who know him, it'll be the greatest day of our lives. I, I don't care about if I get coal in my stocking. What I care about is I don't get coal in my stocking on Judgment Day. I, I, I just, I don't care what I have in this world. What I, what I care about is that when Christ returns, he'll say to me, well done, faithful and good servant. Enter into the joy of thy kingdom. Christ is coming back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this day. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for all that we've heard here today, which revealed to us the majesty and beauty of, of Christmas. And I pray, dear Lord, as we leave here this day, that our hearts and minds and our lives would be touched to live in a more significant way in the light of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.